Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll preview a first-of-its-kind collaboration between two local early music ensembles who will be presenting a program of rarely performed 17th-century music. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about the U.S. premiere of a docu-musical titled London Road. Later in the show, two of the founders of Chicago Cabaret Week will stop by to talk about year two of the series. And Daily Herald columnist Sean Stangland will join me to preview the summer movie season. Lots of big-budget films are set to come out over the next several months. Will people be going to see them? We'll discuss... All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. Rarely performed pieces of 17th century music will be given new life in a pair of local performances coming up this month. The concerts are the result of a first-of-its-kind collaboration between two of Chicago's prominent early music ensembles, the Newberry Consort and Bella Voce. The Newberry Consort performs medieval, Renaissance, and Baroque music, and also beyond, in a historically informed way. So that means on period instruments, and vocally, we perform stylistically the way they would have performed at the time. And we also um, contextualize the music in the period in which it's presented. This is Liza Malamut, the artistic director of the Newberry Consort. Her counterpart is Bella Voce Artistic Director Andrew Lewis. Bella Voce crafts performances that engage audiences in the dialogue between early music and the music of our time. And so we perform early music, medieval, renaissance, and baroque music according to historically informed performance practice. And we have both our chorus and the sinfonia, uh, which plays on period instruments. And then we do new music, largely by living composers. While both organizations have operated in the same musical stratospheres for over 35 years, they've never worked on a project together. That changed with the idea of performing an ambitious but rarely attempted program made up of German Renaissance composer Michael Pretorius's music. I was actually introduced to Andy at our um, annual fundraising gala. Pretorius really made sense uh, as a collaboration between our two groups because the music is really large scale. Um, It's for a very large group of instruments and singers. We just started talking about, you know, what we might be able to do together. You know, we're, most of our programs, obviously, we're perfectly capable of doing on our own, but there are some things that we just can't or at least not very easily. And so a collaboration between our two organizations seemed really natural. The two groups have actually never worked together before, and so it seemed like a really good opportunity. The program is titled Singen und Sagen, which translates to sing and to say, music for hope in a time of war. The amount of musicians and singers needed to perform these 17th century works means they're rarely presented in the U.S. I think certainly in the United States, it's quite rare. It requires a lot. 
Pretorius well, certainly people, some people know that name. It's not quite as well known as, for example, like Handel. You know, you hear a lot of Messiah around Christmas time, for example. I think it is quite rare to hear this music performed at its full capacity, um, which makes this quite special. I recently caught up with Malamut and Lewis at the Old Town neighborhood-based St. Chrysostom's Episcopal Church, which is where one of the two upcoming concerts will be held. Because of the effort that it takes to mount uh, a performance like this, it happens rarely. I would say, just thinking off the top of my head, places where it might be performed would be in like a festival environment where uh, people might come together for a couple of weeks over the summer and pool their resources uh, to do this kind of performance. There are pieces in this program that are written for over 20 individual voices and instruments. So that means it's in what's called a polychoral style. So that means that there are different groups um, of singers and of instrumentalists that are singing different parts um, from different parts of the room and then bringing that together. So in order to do that, you need quite a large number of people um, to create this really cool sonic effect. So that would definitely be difficult for certainly the Newberry concert to do alone because of, I, th I think we're using over something like over 30 musicians in this concert. It's, it's really, really exciting. So what's the uh, planning slash prep rehearsal process look like? Well, it started quite a while back. Um, so the first thing that has to be done is all of the, the music need, needed to be transcribed and made into performance editions. And the performance editions had to be specifically for this group of people because Pretorius is actually really interesting. He was a very flexible composer. So it wasn't just like, for example, one trombone has to play this specific line in this specific place. There are actually quite a number of feasible options. So with the instruments and the singers that we have, we make additions um, to enable this music to be performed not only the way it would be most exciting to be heard, but the way that it's feasible to be heard. Um, and that can include different doubling practices, for example, singers and instrumentalists playing the same line of music, or one singer on a part with, um, say, an instrumentalist doing another line right underneath them. So that was kind of step one. Yeah. Step two is, I think, um, has to do a lot with how the two ensembles are going to be interacting together. So um, Andy and I have been talking about the best way to orchestrate the program. He's recommended, let's put the voices here, who's going to be singing what, and then I sort of work with that and put the program together uh, instrumentally. And then, of course, there's all the logistic aspects of it, right? Where are people going to be placed in this space? How are the rehearsals going to be structured? These Pretorius pieces contain some of the most elaborate vocal and instrumental writing in all of early German music. Pretorius was a devout Lutheran, so certainly his beliefs in the power of music as prayer, music as inseparable from prayer, to sing and to say, that was a huge part of what went into writing his music. And I think even zooming out, for me, it's quite universal. You know, I'm not Lutheran, but as a musician, I can sort of appreciate the spirituality of music as a form to express joy or supplication or longing, especially during times that were, you know, fairly dark. Um, when Pretorius wrote this larger scale music, 
Um, times are overall pretty good. Some of it was actually performed. One event would be the, the, the 100-year anniversary of the Reformation. There was a huge event where this music was performed with huge, <laughs> huge forces, tons of musicians. But then shortly after that, uh, the Thirty Years' War started in 1618, and this music was written prior to that, but it was published in 1619. And so after the start of the war, there's really no record of it being performed for many years after. And that was because of how detrimental the war was on on really everything and everybody. But musicians certainly, there was no more money, people were dying, getting sick. So to put it bluntly, a lot of bad things happened, but the music has survived these hundreds of years, which to me really speaks to the power of it. This music survives, I think, primarily just because, to maybe use a cliched word, but I mean it, um, it's great. It is great. <laughs> it, it is just amazing music, and it's very ornate and um, spectacular, uh, and uh, which is one of the reasons that makes it not always performed, but also, uh, nevertheless, it has had this longevity just because um, it, it's sort of a landmark group of compositions, and it was very well liked by a lot of people in Pretorius's time and then, of course, through the ages. It's very sonically immersive, and it's very, I hate to use words like like beautiful, but when you're listening to it, you can listen to it with all of yourself. I know that sounds a little esoteric, but there are so many different textures, so many different voices, combinations of instruments, and there's, there's sort of never a dull moment. There's always something new happening. So you're surrounded by sound, but there's so much variation. It's sort of like you're on this path and you're, you know where you're going, but there's all sorts of interesting things to see along the way, and some of those things are really surprising. Mm. Lewis says on a sonic level, audiences will likely be hearing something they've never experienced performed live. I think they're going to be just gobsmacked by the incredible sound that this is going to make. Pretorius's music is what we call polychoral music, and we consider other groups of instruments as choirs, so to speak. So there's the vocal choir, but there's also the choir of strings, a choir of brass instruments, uh, etc. And the, the way that those sounds come together is just, it's a very rich, robust sound. You hear this not just with your ears, but with your mind and your whole body. You will feel these vibrations coming at you. Malamut is also hoping audiences leave these concerts hopeful. One of the things that we're doing with this program is we're interspersing readings by people who actually lived during the Thirty Years' War. They, they either were working during it or they survived it or, or simply their texts have survived. And the texts are sometimes joyous, they're sometimes fearful, they're sometimes really, really dark. But we're juxtaposing it with this music that has survived as well. And, and what I'm really hoping is that when people hear this music and they hear the readings of these texts, 
written by people who, who live during these dark times that they sort of walk out with hope that humans are capable of a lot of, a lot of not great things, but we're also capable of really beautiful things and, and acts of kindness. And the title itself, I think, describes how I want people to feel. This is Music for Hope. The Newberry Consort and Bella Voce will be performing Zingend und Zagen, Music for Hope in a Time of War, together on Saturday, May 13th in Chicago at St. Chrysostom's Episcopal Church and Sunday the 14th at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Evanston. You can find more info at newberryconsort.org or at bellavoce.org. And a quick reminder, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. That's theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Shattered Globe Theater is wrapping up its current season with a U.S. premiere of a musical that the company describes as, quote, experimental and innovative. It's called London Road, with book and lyrics by British playwright Alecky Blythe and music and lyrics by Adam Cork. London Road is based on the real-life tragedies involving the serial murders of five sex workers in the town of Ipswich, England. In fact, Carrie, all the texts and lyrics in the music come right from interviews with the people from that community? That is my understanding. They're calling it a verbatim musical. Now, we've certainly seen, you know, sort of verbatim plays before. I think a very famous example would be the Laramie Project about the murder of, uh, the hate crime murder of Matthew Shepard in Laramie, Wyoming, um, and that that play, which has been everywhere and was turned into an HBO film, used interviews with people in, in Laramie to get a sense of what the community was like. So it's a little bit like that in terms of, I think, what it's aiming for, only it's been musicalized. And I think that represents tremendous challenges. And I have to say, for the most part, I feel like the creators rose to those challenges. The story is about the community of Ipswich, which is not a small town. I think they say at one point about hundred and 17,000 or 113,000 people live there. Um, But it's not a town that's used to having these sorts of major crimes, of course. In the fall of 2006, women start disappearing. They don't particularly maybe notice the first one because they're sex workers. They're already marginalized women. But then there's that growing fear, that sense of, who is this person? And then when they find out who it is, then it's, oh my God, did this happen just down the street from me? So a lot of it's about the community and then eventually, by the second act, we do finally hear the voices of the women who have been working on London Road as sex workers and who have had to pull away out of fear for their lives. So it's more of a sociological study about what the what this particular crime has done to make this community look at itself. Um, some of it's seemingly, you know, great stuff like let's let's have a you know let's let's beautify, let's put gardens together, let's. Let's get out together and do more bingo and things like that. But there's also a sense that despite the concern that they have for the women, that the women are still not fully seen as part of the community. So I think that's one of the things that's really interesting to me 
about this. I think it takes some time to train your ear for the verbatim lyrics that are not, you know, sort of your classic, you know, rhyming, rhyming schemes. But once I settled into it, I, I found myself pretty absorbed by it. Jonathan, what was your take? I also was absorbed by it. It's, I, I, I want to note that this musical would be an extremely ambitious project for any theater company. Absolutely. Let alone a smaller off-loop theater troupe such as Shattered Globe, which really pulls it off with imagination and confidence under director Elizabeth Margolius and musical director Andra Vellis-Simon, who's an old veteran of Chicago musical theater. It's a unique musical. There's no dance in it, and there are no catchy, hummable tunes. <laughs> and yet the music, the score, is rich and layered and extremely complex. Uh, music by Adam Cork, uh, as uh, Gary, as you said. And to my ear, it channels at various moments and shifting the music of Kurt Weill, minimalism in music, and also the madrigals and polyphony mm. of classical music. There are 11 cast members. All of them have solo lines to sing, but none of them has a standalone solo song. Everything is an ensemble effort. And the reason why is that London Road, it's not just about a community. It's more specifically, it's about a neighborhood, right, community right. within the seacoast town of Ipswich, the people who live on or along or near London Road, which is a real road. A massive police presence cracks the case. Uh, all of these murders, by the way, took place within a six-week period, very, very condensed. And a massive police presence uh, cracks the case, but along the way, the murders in the case become a media circus. This is factual. And the verbatim interviews are with London Road residents, police, sex workers, news reporters, and focuses on the neighborhood reactions and feelings while the murders are going on during the trial after the murder has been coughed and afterwards. So they run the range, fear, suspicion, doubt, hmm. bravado, resentments, and ultimately healing. It, it, it struck me, Carrie, that the things folks said the most is that their London Road neighborhood was a good neighborhood, right. and not the Ipswich Red Light District as it was identified by news media and police. They also cite the disruptiveness of the police presence for weeks at a time, and eventually a community garden project, you've already referred to it, Kerry, eventually a community garden project to beautify London Road begins the healing process, and indeed, the show opens and closes with a song that goes begonias, petunias, and, you know, ivy, and impatience. And this is part of the healing process. Yes. I think it's also interesting, you mentioned the ambitions. This is a play that also requires four different live feed stations, which are very cleverly at the theater with space for this. Video, 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 live, video, feed. live yeah. feed video, yeah. yes. There's four little corners that sort of maybe suggest the houses on the street. They're, they're shuttered. They have blinds. And we see the shadows of, and the silhouettes of the people who are being interviewed, you know, by, either by the, the playwriting team or by the media. And then we see their reflections on screens around us. Uh, so there's that sense of surveillance. There's that sense of things closing in. Often the actors themselves, who all play multiple roles, as, as I think you've mentioned, often, you know, sometimes switching within the same song, it felt like. You know, very, very adept work by the ensemble. But they're also carrying or manipulating these live feed, you know, video cameras. So it's technically not just the music that's challenging to my mind, but also just the staging itself. And, yeah, I just thought they pulled it off 
really beautifully. Uh, there are some, you know, wonderful Shattered Globe regulars in this. It's, a, it's an ensemble cast of 11, which is a little bit larger than some smaller theaters are used to, used to putting, putting into play. And I did not feel that there was a weak link at all. I was also struck, you know, most of it is sung through. The moment when the music drops out is absolutely chilling because that is when we hear the voices of the residents who have the most malevolent things to say about the women who were killed. And it's, it's absolutely shocking and it just feels so stark. And, you know, that's when I noticed, oh, there's no music here. This is just the words of these people and how they really felt about these women who were victimized. Yeah. Stunning, stunning choice in my view. Yeah. Uh, London Road, I agree, really sparkles as a production. There's a talented and deeply engaged cast. And you're, it's an in-the-round staging and in a small space. So you're very, very close to the faces, their bodies, and you can see how intensely involved they are. There's a wonderful five-piece orchestra built around a splendid woodwind ensemble, which is really kind of unusual for mm -hmm. musical theater. Uh, and the in-the-round staging is creative and effective and meshes perfectly with a rather elaborate live video scheme. And I, I need to compliment also lighting designer Levy Wilkins for outstanding work people sometimes uh, forget or don't notice how important the lighting can be in a show like this with so many shifting moments and, and, and configurations of cast members in different spots. Uh, so excellent lighting and also excellent dialect work from uh, dialect coach Sammy Grant on the English accents. There's one thing, though, that some people, I was one of them, might find missing from London Road, and that's an easy ability to identify with any particular individual. All cast members, as you already said, take on multiple roles, uh, sometimes switching sexes, and only two or three of them are ever identified by actual names. So audience members never have a specific story to follow, nor a character whom they get to know. Uh, there clearly is a lot of communal passion, and the score very successfully captures and enlarges that sense, those those emotional feelings. Still, London Road was more intellectual for me than emotional, and that's neither bad nor good nor wrong nor right, but merely my reaction to the piece. Right. I think there's always a difficult thing when you're doing a show like this, when you're dealing with this subject matter, I should say. You don't want to valorize or overemphasize the killer. You know, or, uh, I think that was certainly something the creators of the Laramie Project were. It was not, you know, they, it, it's not a true crime show. Let's put it that way. Although the Brits certainly do a lot with, with great, you know, true crime or, <laughs> or just crime shows in general. Mm -hmm. So there is some of that grittiness that you might expect um, in terms of what is actually going on. Um, although it's not, it's not... Um, given a visual context, you know, it's just what is happening in our minds. But I think maybe that gets to um, the intellectual con uh, construct that you were talking about, Jonathan. We're, we're not, it's definitely not a show, <laughs> show us everything. It's letting us imagine and create these pictures in our minds, uh, which I find, I, I found that I really appreciated. I do agree with you, though, that it's, it's a little hard to find one character to identify with, except, I think, when the women themselves are finally heard from. And that, again, is a very unadorned uh, approach. And it's the women, not the women who were killed, obviously, but the women who had been working on London Road and found that their fear was making them reevaluate what they had been doing, why they had been out there. And that, to me, is a, you know, that's the part that I did find very emotionally 
rich, but I do think it's more about who are we in this community, right? How do we react? One story that I, I hadn't thought about this in many years, but I lived in Wicker Park in the early 90s, and I remember there was a young woman, I think a teenager, who was found beaten, strangled, her body stuffed into a trunk in an alley just a couple blocks from where I lived. And I remember feeling that fear of, oh my gosh, is there somebody out there preying on women? And then there were reports that perhaps she had some gang affiliations. Whether she did or not, I don't know. But I do remember this kind of dual feeling that I had of like, oh, that's horrible, but also a sense of relief, like, oh, well, maybe then they're not just targeting random women. Like, I'm not like her, right? I mean, and I think that is what London Road is playing off of. And I hadn't, again, I, I hadn't thought about that story for many, many years, but it came rushing back to me while watching, uh, while watching this musical. And it made me think about what ways do we as communities decide, oh, that won't happen to us. Those people, they're, they're not really us, right? Um, and it's not, I don't want to make it sound like it's at all didactic or pedantic about it. I think it's just in the way that the presentation is made, and that really does, to me, go back to the verbatim nature. They're not putting, they are sort of putting words in their mouths, but these are the words that the people they talk to actually had. Um, if anyone is presented as comic relief, I think we'd have to say it's the media, right, Jonathan? <laughs> yes. Well, they, they they don't put words in people's mouths, but they edit the words, the words. in people's sure, mouths. Sure, of course. Right. For a focus. Cast of 11 has uh, only two men in the cast. The other nine are women, and I assume that that is intentional. Well, the women play some men's roles and switch back and forth. And I, I wonder, I wouldn't know unless I talked to the the playwrights or read the script, whether, you know, this could be cast with any mixture of the numbers mm -hmm. of men and women, or whether it does specify, because uh, obviously uh, there is a considerable focus on uh, how women react to these, how women can be and are victimized, mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, the communal response. But uh, that's, and it's not about, we never see the murderer, and it's not right. about the murders. It's right. about we hear we hear his name, but we never see his the body. Face. We, about the body politics, is what right? The show yeah. is and about. we do yeah. see the faces and names of the women who the, the five women who were killed. Serious stuff that you don't usually associate with a, a musical, but it sounds like two recommendations. Shattered Globe Theater's U.S. premiere of London Road is running through June third at Theater Wit. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're, you're welcome, Carrie. Forgive me if I seem to preach There is something I want to say A message that I hope will reach I'm Gary Zydek, you're tuned into the arts section We're listening to the great Dee Alexander The acclaimed vocalist is part of the lineup for this year's Chicago Cabaret Week Which kicks off on Friday, May 12th Joining me in studio to talk about the festivities are two of the week's coordinators and local cabaret performers themselves, Claudia Homel and Hilary Feldman. Thanks for being here. Thanks Great. for having us. This is the second ever Chicago Cabaret Week. Uh, the first was last year, but from what I understand, the origins go back even further. <laughs> we started the idea in 2019, early 2019, with the idea of launching in March 2020. Oh, <laughs> Who could have guessed? Um. Who could have guessed, really? <laughs> Has something like this ever been attempted before, like a festival all around cabaret? Not to our knowledge, no. And we got inspired by how Choose Chicago, the Tourism Bureau, upholds Chicago 
Restaurant Week and Chicago Theater Week Mm -hmm. and even Chicago Dance Week. So we said, well, Chicago Cabaret Week is due to be launched as well. And 2020 was also the year of Chicago music. Mm, So it was was meant to be a nice (laughs) partnership, but didn't quite happen. Right, okay. So when the pandemic did come in, everything obviously was canceled, and then was it just a matter of waiting for when the the time was right to try to relaunch? Yeah, but we did, you know, in that even though we never launched the first year, we did learn things. So we we sort of reorganized ourselves and set ourselves up quite differently for the uh, debut last year. We were going to have 45 shows in 16 venues in the course of 10 days which meant a lot of shows were going to be competing with each other. So when we re-studied this possibility, we said, mm, let's not do that this time out. We're sort of featuring and saying, go out, check out what cabaret is in Chicago, and you're going to get a taste from South Side to Arlington Heights to Rogers Park to Wicker Park. So, I think everyone... Listening is familiar with the term cabaret, but maybe isn't exactly sure what it means. And there's a loose definition. Maybe you can help expand upon, like, what differentiates a, a cabaret performance from a small concert? Well, cabaret at some point has been an umbrella term for a lot of different things, for jazz and club singing, magicians, stand-up comedy, burlesque. I mean, a whole array of different things. For me, now the term is a little narrower, um, but there's still many types of cabaret out there. I think in a very general sense, it is music and story in an intimate setting, and however that plays out, right? So we have several different types of artistry happening throughout the week. Um, We have burlesque, we have you know, straight up jazz. We have very story oriented cabaret. We have uh, a Filipino, the Filipino <laughs> song Filipino book, songbook. influenced uh, by the American occupation of the Philippines. Yeah. So, uh, so there's a, a huge array of stuff happening throughout the week at different venues throughout the Chicago area. I'd say the other thing that makes cabaret a little different than just hearing a jazz vocalist in a small room, because cabaret is by definition, the small room. But it's also the effort or the intention to connect to the audience. Mm -hmm. It's very much driven by that idea of the dialogue with the audience and getting the audience's feedback. And so, you know, you can be in a jazz concert where as an audience member, we're the spectators, or you can be in a cabaret room where we're participants, even if we're not the ones singing, how we breathe and laugh and respond is very much part of the fabric of the show. Yeah, And I'm sure you two are, are biased, but would you say Chicago has a strong cabaret community compared to maybe some other cities? For sure. I think um, maybe second to New York in this country. And I'd say even maybe first compared to New York for the relationship between the performers. The mm-hmm. New York Association's are more venue-driven. They've been created by the venue and club owners. And also, Chicago is the, I would say, for the U.S., it's really where Cabaret got its footing before it went to New York. Yep. So over 100 years ago, after World War One, there was, at one point, I read there were 450 Cabaret rooms in this town. 
which is kind of amazing. Astounding. And when the Alder people figured out that there was money to be made, they raised the entertainment tax, and that number was immediately reduced to 150. But still, can you imagine <laughs> 150 cabaret rooms in this town? And when we talk about where, it was all up and down Chicago, but State Street, that great street, I just want to say, <laughs> was State Street in Bronzeville from 31st to 45th, and it was the stroll. And from, oh, yeah. from, from dusk to dawn, you could go cabaret room to hear jazz or go dancing, to theater, to supper club, to another cabaret room, another cabaret room, another theater, ni- nightclub, and back to the cabaret. Yeah, the stroll. The week kicks off with a, a special program on Friday, May 12th, at the Epiphany Center for the Arts. Beautiful building there off Ashland. 13 artists, including both of you, will be performing. My organization, Acts of Kindness Cabaret, is an organization that works that exists primarily to use cabaret as a tool to help other nonprofits. So we'll be performing as a group, as an organization. There are three singers in this particular show that we'll be doing on, or highlights from a particular show we'll be doing on opening night. And then um, next up will be Claudia's organization. I'll let you. So Working in Concert is an Umbrella Performing Arts Alliance. And in among our initiatives, from Bellissima Opera to the Chicago Paris Cabaret Connexion. We also facilitate Black Voices in Cabaret and Song Shop Live. And from those initiatives, we've pulled together five singers who are on the roster of Black Voices in Cabaret and a couple of us who are deeply involved in the Cabaret Connection that's going to be organizing a festival in Paris. We've got Lynn Jordan, Ava Logan, Evelyn Danner, Sean Harris, Jean Franks, WDCB's own, myself and Barbara Smith to sing a kind of bon voyage to go to Paris. Let's give people a little taste, right? Yeah. As this is what you'll be singing? Yeah. Yeah. Philip Seward is going to be singing the duet with me. The late Bob Marine is on the album. Okay. The evening will then close out with Anne and Mark Burnell representing Chicago Cabaret Professionals. They're obviously incredibly well-known in town, uh, both individually and as a duo. So they're going to close out our evening of opening night. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm in studio with Claudia Homel and Hilary Feldman, both local cabaret performers and coordinators of this year's Chicago Cabaret Week, which gets underway on Friday, May 12th, and continues through May 21st. We're not going to go through each night of the the schedule. People can go to chicagocabaretweek.org to to look at a full schedule, but we did want to highlight some of the things going on, and one of the things, Hillary, you mentioned was this program on Saturday the 13th, the Great Filipino Songbook. How did this come together? Well, they submitted last year... And they were picked up immediately. And they gave an unbelievably great show. Luella Rose is their lead. Mm -hmm. Um, She's been a a youth ambassador for the Philippines here in Chicago. So she comes to this question of the American music influences in the Philippines between world wars was particularly strong. And so there's a whole Filipino songbook that was inspired by the great American songbook, but has its own take. She is such a vibrant performer Mm -hmm. and her band behind her, including her husband and, and other fellows, they're a lot of fun. 
I played Dee Alexandra at the top of the segment. She'll be performing with John McLean at the Promontory on May 19th. And then the uh, week closes out on uh, May 21st with Sam Fazio in the Andersonville neighborhood. Sam Fazio, who's a new person to us. You know, yeah. this is one of the things that's really so cool about opening up the doors is that we learn about singers who've been plying their craft for a while, but we just haven't snared them into the into the circle here. So the circle's been growing, and that's a really, really good thing. And I know the focus is on... The week coming up, but any thoughts? Is the hope then this is like an annual thing? Yes, that's the hope, and that it will grow, that we'll be able to accommodate more artists, that more venues will get involved. You know, we, we want to see the festival grow. Chicago Cabaret Week kicks off on Friday, May 12th. You can find the full lineup of everything that's going on at chicagocabaretweek.org. Claudia... Hillary, thanks so much for for coming by to talk to us. Thanks so much for having us. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. For years, you could count on the film release calendar like clockwork. Studios would tell us what they thought of movies by where they were released. Garbage misfit films came out in the first part of the year, big blockbusters in the summer, and prestige award contenders in the fall and holiday season. The pandemic disrupted that system because for a while no new movies were going to theaters. Then there was a feeling out process in 2021 into 2022. And here we are in May of 23, and it feels like we're getting back to the traditional film release calendar for better or worse. Lots of big-budget, audience-friendly movies are scheduled to come out over the next four months. Joining me in studio to talk summer movie season is Daily Herald assistant news editor and widescreen columnist Sean Stanglin. Welcome back. Hi, Gary. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, yeah. So you were here in this exact spot last year right around this time, and we previewed last year's summer movie season. And uh, even though things in May of 2022 felt like we were pretty close to normal, there was still a lot of uncertainty about what the summer box office would look like because we just didn't know how people were going to react. When you look back at summer 2022, how did it go? The safest bet did make a billion dollars at the global box office, (laughs) Jurassic World. Uh, Dominion. Uh, you'll have a hard time finding anyone who actually liked that movie. <laughs> uh, but Tom Cruise, the, the line has been that he saved the movie business with his $1.4 billion grossing Top Gun Maverick. Uh, and it was a pretty remarkable run uh, where it just didn't go away for months and months and months, even after it was put on Paramount Plus, still hanging around in the top of the box office. Um, and I think people are still trying to figure out what exactly you can attribute that to, whether it's the draw of Tom Cruise flying a jet or <laughs> hitting the, the nostalgia button in just the right place for a certain generation of people um, or just plain being a great movie, which a lot of people thought it was nominated for Best Picture. So I don't think there's anything on the schedule this year that can replicate that kind of success. But I think that there's no more uncertainty anymore. People want to go to the movies. That is for sure. We had $2 billion grocers last summer. We had two that came close in Doctor Strange 2 and uh, Minions 84, whichever number that was. (laughs) Whichever number of the Minions films it was. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, Avatar came in December. Super Mario Brothers is passing a billion points right now with all of its uh, fire flowers. 
And, uh, you know, horror movies are still dependable. Scream 6 on a $33 million budget did $176 million global. So people want to go to the movies. What do they want to see? Disney and Marvel are hoping it's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 this weekend. Right, um, right. <laughs> but there's the, the, the new question is, is superhero fatigue finally here after a tepid reception for Ant-Man 3 and a diminished return for Black Panther 2? The latest tracking data I saw for Guardians this weekend puts it at $130 million opening weekend, which sounds like an absurd amount of money but to some people will be seen as a failure because it didn't match the 146 million opening of the second film in 2017. Any, any number over a hundred million for guardians, I think is a pretty healthy indicator that people want to see this movie. And then just to go back to your point about last year, we had some really big hits with top gun and this year, maybe not as many, but it does feel like the summer schedule is a lot fuller than it was last year. Yes. There are huge movies almost every week from now until mid-August. Um, so I don't know if there's anything that can match Top Gun, but I think there's going to be consistent business for a long, you know, for the entire summer. Theaters are going to be packed. What's going to stand out? My knee-jerk reaction would be The Little Mermaid. Just seems like a natural, it's, it's much like The Lion King remake. Mm. Um, it's, it's a movie that even if you maybe don't want to see it, you're going to be curious about it. It's going to, and there's even some outrage over it because how dare they cast a black woman as the mermaid. Uh, <laughs> right. right. Um, so it's, it's been in the public eye already for over a year. And I think it will bring in a new audience. It will bring in generations of audiences. Uh, that seems to be like the safest bet this summer is the little mermaid. And yeah. that comes out on May 26th. You also talked about fatigue, Fast and Furious, Part 10 is coming out. Uh, I feel like there's some fatigue there. We've seen, and we've seen some fatigue from the American audience in the last two movies in diminished returns, but the global box office for those movies is still stratospheric. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be a win for Universal in the long run, even if the numbers here are down. But uh, there have been stories about that movie. That, that comes out May 19th. There have been stories about production troubles on that movie where... There's a rumor Vin Diesel hardly shares a scene with any of the other principal cast members. The director was fired almost immediately. Yeah, there was uh, they, a whole thing with the director. Yeah. And then there was like Charlize Theron was saying she did, did like her fight scene. Oh, yeah, Charlize Theron and Michelle Rodriguez had to direct <laughs> their own fight scene. And if you see the trailer, there's a couple shots where it looked like it looks like Jason Momoa's face is pasted onto a stunt double. Oh, I don't really? know anything for sure. I'm just saying what it looks like, folks. <laughs> I feel some fatigue there. One thing that I've been waiting for just uh, as a matter of curiosity is The Flash, which is coming out June 16th. Yes, and that's going to be a big referendum on not only the DC movies, but on Ezra Miller, uh, the actor who has had their share of legal troubles. Um, and the studio is definitely trying hard to spin it as someone who needs mental health help and is now getting it. And the studio is backing this movie 100% to where they, they've they even had uh, Tom Cruise come out and say that he saw the movie and it was great. Really? So they're trying oh, to get wow. backing from the president of Hollywood on this movie, <laughs> which uh, brings Michael Keaton back as Batman and also Ben Affleck back as Batman because yeah. everything's in the multiverse now. and. Uh, it has a time travel plot where the Flash erases the plot of Man of Steel from history. So Zod comes back. Michael Sh Chicago's <laughs> own Michael Shannon is in the film. 
wreaking havoc on the earth again. It's another movie that's, it seems like a hard sell from a conceptual standpoint, but I guess all you have to do is put Michael Keaton in the trailer <laughs> in the Batman suit, yep. and they hope a billion, a billion dollars worth of people show up. I'll nerd out here for a second, uh, and spoiler alert for people that didn't see the last Spider-Man movie, uh, but in that film they bring back past Spider-Mans uh, from past decades. It would be so cool if Christian Bale showed up as so they had all all three movie Batman. I think that's a hard sell for Christian yeah, Bale know, to come do that. I but uh... <laughs> it, would, it would be cool, though. It would be cool yes, to have all those Batman <laughs> in the same movie. So, yeah. You know, what I've really highlighted is July 21st, and Barbie and Oppenheimer come out that weekend, and I just feel like that, that to me, is going to tell me personally like how ready people are because I think those are both big movies. Barbie's been talked about for a long time. And um, Oppenheimer, that's a tough, uh, it's a tough subject matter, but the, the cast is remarkable. Those are extremely high risk, high reward movies. Yeah. Uh, and to open both of them in the summer is really strange to me. Oppenheimer feels like an October, November, December movie. Christopher Nolan's betting on himself again that, hey, I got the goods, even if it's a movie about the guy who created the atomic bomb. I don't know how you sell it as a summer movie. Uh, they're trying right now. Uh, touting how much of it is shot in IMAX. The trailers have been very bracing, very, you know, they're quite a thing to see. But I don't know if, I don't know how you get the Barbie crowd to go, which is why Barbie comes out the same day. It's, it's good <laughs> counter-programming. Um, whoever decided to put Barbie out on that day, I think is very smart. Barbie's probably going to win the box office yeah, battle. I, th I think so. Um, and I keep reading how everybody attached to Barbie was like, this was the best script I've ever read. So there's some big twist coming that we don't see in the trailers. There's some meta twist on it. Uh, you know, I, I see that and I see that Will Ferrell is in it too. I'm like, is this going to be like Lego movie for Barbies? Which maybe I think that's probably the right idea where the Lego movie had this mm -hmm. meta twist where twist. the Legos are in, you know, are some kids toys in real life. I'm very interested to see both of these films and how they perform. Oppenheimer will, will be talking about for the whole year. Cause it will be, it will be talked about in the awards season. I'm sure. As a movie, it's a referendum on Nolan's career as a hit maker. How big of a star is the director when it comes to something like this? Right. And we've talked about superstar directors uh, over the years about how there's this group that that still are considered artists and they can still get free reign. And Christopher Nolan's definitely in, in that group. And I, I feel like it's that type of movie that, yeah, it's not going to win week one, but if it gets great reviews and word of mouth, it's the type of movie that I think could stay in the top 10 for a few weeks if everyone needs to go see that, or it could be this disastrous, no pun intended, bomb. <laughs> I think you're right about having legs, especially if you look at the following weeks. Like the week after, it's Haunted Mansion, which is another Disney, that seems like something that should be going straight to Disney+. Plus. Right. A Disney movie with Owen Wilson and Lakeith, and Lakeith Stanfield uh, based on a theme park ride. Uh, and then there's a, an A24 horror import talk to me that comes out that week, which is will make plenty of money because horror movies make money, but not a top box office contender. Oppenheimer has some room to grow in the weeks after release, and I think it will do that. And then just really quickly for folks that, that aren't aware of the cast, Cillian Murphy, who is a frequent collaborator of Nolan's, plays uh, Robert Oppenheimer. But then it, it also stars Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Rami Malek, uh, Josh Hartnett, Kenneth Branagh, Dane DeHaan, uh, Gary Oldman. 
Casey Affleck has a role in it that we don't know who it is, but just like this all-star. And there's like tons more names that you'll recognize. Yeah, the name I'm excited about, I don't know how big his part is, but uh, Jack Quaid to me is one of the most exciting young actors. And he's in that too. uh, He's on The Boys. He's the lead character of The Boys on Amazon. And uh, he was in the last two Scream movies. He's a very exciting actor in no small part because of his heritage. And he he looks exactly like his parents, Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan. And he brings both of their energies. He's a very exciting actor to watch. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm sitting in studio talking with Daily Herald assistant news editor and widescreen columnist Sean Stanglin, and we're previewing the summer movie season. You know, speaking of all-star casts, uh, Wes Anderson's film, Asteroid City. Have you read anything about this? I, I have not read, but I've watched the trailer like five or six times okay. and seen someone speculate that Jason Schwartzman may be playing Stanley Kubrick in this film just <laughs> on his costuming. Um, I've I've reached the point with Wes Anderson where I've uh, I've stopped saying, oh, look, it's another Wes Anderson movie to, oh, it's another Wes Anderson movie. Still embracing the aesthetic. Uh, French Dispatch was wonderful, I thought. So I'm very excited to see what he does with uh, an alien story set in the 50s that's how it looks <laughs> yeah and this cast uh jeff goldblum scarlett johansson tom hanks jeffrey wright tilda swinton brian cranston edward norton adrian brody <laughs> jason schwartzman steve carell william defoe margot robbie i mean that's that's an example of these superstar directors that I think people like want to work with them. So like the next Tarantino movie, we're probably going to see a similar cast where everyone wants to work with these directors before they stop making movies. It's pretty good when you're a director who can call in Tom Hanks from the bullpen, essentially to play what looks like the role Bill Murray right, would have played. Right, if right. Bill Murray wasn't a persona non grata at the moment. I was going to say no, <laughs> no Bill Murray this time. One movie we haven't talked about, and it's probably the movie I'm most looking forward to on a personal level, is the uh, Mission Impossible sequel, and that comes out, I think, all by itself in mid-July. Yes, it comes out July 12th, two weeks after Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So there there will be a time when we can see Indiana Jones and Ethan Hunt in the movie theater on the same day. Is this 19- Not that I'm making these plans or anything. <laughs> <laughs> is this 1997? <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I would expect big things from that Mission Impossible film. The trajectory for that franchise could suggest that this could be the first billion-dollar Mission Impossible movie. Fallout did 791 Global, which was the biggest hit of Tom Cruise's career until Tom Cruise, Ma- or Tom Cruise Maverick, Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the, the idea that it's a part one of two might hurt it just a little bit, but right. they know how to hype these movies like no other. Where when you went to Avatar in IMAX, you saw a nine-minute IMAX featurette about filming one stunt in this movie in this mission impossible movie so they know what's going to get you to go that's the uh, motorcycle parachute yes he drives a motorcycle into a crevasse somewhere in norway and parachutes off of it and um you know just watching them make the movie is a spectacle it's the single movie i'm most excited to see this year because i'm excited to see anything that tom cruise does and uh christopher mccrory the his constant collaborator now he is such an, he's more than a director now. I feel like he's like an engineer or something. <laughs> he's like engineering these entertainment products and, uh, but knows how to do it with emotion and with smarts. Mission Impossible is an example of a very popular and successful movie franchise that has come back uh, several times over a long period of time. One movie franchise that stretches even longer than that is returning this summer. 
Indiana Jones. I think that's going to be a big question mark as far as who's going to go see that movie. I'm not sure that Indiana Jones connects with people younger than my generation. I'm 44. Indiana Jones is right in my wheelhouse. Um, (laughs) And I think it will, with 80-year-old Harrison Ford out there still doing the work, putting in the work, I think it will draw an older audience than many of the uh, other blockbusters on the schedule. They're, they're hoping for Top Gun Maverick numbers for this. I don't know if that's possible, but you never know. The, the absence of Spielberg, I think, will turn off more people than, than they realize. Um, so Steven Spielberg has not directed this film. It's James Mangold who did Logan and Ford versus Ferrari. Um, and who will be making a Star Wars movie in the next few years, unless it's one of the 84 Star Wars movies that gets canceled every year. <laughs> George Lucas, I have not heard of any involvement from him. Uh, the trailer, I have to say, is it's fine. I think the the main draw for, for true movie fans for Indiana Jones should be the chance to hear what might be John Williams' last score for a film. He is 91 years old. He has been iffy on whether he's retiring. Uh, he just performed here with the CSO in Chicago, looked great, uh, performed the whole concert. And in other recent years, he'd only he'd only conducted half the show. So I think he's reinvigorated at 91 years old. Hopefully it's not his last score, uh, but we should treasure any chance we get to hear new music by John Williams. That's a good point about the the score. So we, we've highlighted some of the, the big releases. There's a bunch more movies coming out that we didn't get to, but I did want to highlight a few of the, the smaller movies that are coming out this summer that have piqued my interest. Uh, have you heard about Blackberry? That's coming out in a couple of weeks. I have heard it, and I saw it's playing the Chicago Film Critics Festival right. as well. Yeah, so this is all about the, the rise and fall of that once popular mobile device that it, probably people under 20 don't know anything about. It is kind of crazy to think that there was this... I mean, Blackberries were everywhere, and now they're nowhere so and i've heard it's pretty funny so it's a a scripted uh retelling of of the rise and fall of blackberry that officially comes out may 12th but yeah sean mentioned it it is going to be playing at the chicago film critics festival at the music box this film called past lives comes out on on june 2nd and it's an a24 release uh, time spanning romance where teen sweethearts are, are broken up when they're young when the the young woman's parents immigrate from south korea to the u.s and then they reconnect 20 years later the trailer just kind of sold me and then a24's brand name they're they're pretty reliable no hard feelings uh june 23rd jennifer lawrence r-rated comedy that is going to be a very interesting uh thing to play out horror movies have proven that they are still the dependable thing to make for five to 35 million dollars and get a big opening weekend and hopefully a little bit of legs and you make a lot of money. The big screen comedy has not come back yet. And as we see right now during the writer's strike, we see the unwillingness uh, for uh, the CEOs to pay their talent and maybe budgets want to, they want to bring budgets down as more of these, if enough of these big movies flop this summer, maybe the big screen comedy has a shot to come back. And I think this Jennifer Lawrence movie, which has been pushed relentlessly with red band trailers, uh-huh. uh, holding nothing back in the language <laughs> department um, and Jennifer Lawrence holding nothing back. It's, it's definitely a statement movie for her, like kind of saying, this is what I want to do. So hopefully the audience backs it because I think it's really interesting if we can have big screen comedies come back. For a few years, we'd get like a Judd Apatow comedy, but mm-hmm. even those, have, he's gone to Netflix. Yeah, the Judd Apatow movies are gone. The Farrelly Brothers movies are gone. You just don't get them anymore. 
It's not a the communal event of a big screen comedy is one that that definitely went away right. with the pandemic and probably before that. A smaller movie that that kind of piqued my interest, uh, Theater Camp. It's a mockumentary about theater camp starring Ben Platt, and it mm-hmm. just looks hilarious. Uh, and then you mentioned horror movies, uh, and I think you mentioned this one specifically. Talk to Me comes out July 28th, and this is an Australian film uh, that garnered rave reviews at Sundance. The premise involves teens playing a scary party game that never ends well. A24 acquired it, so again, I could I could see that being like a, a small hit. And that trailer played with Evil Dead Rise, which was a pretty decent hit, so I think that's going to get good exposure. The the really interesting horror movie in the schedule to me, opening July 7th, so right after 4th of July weekend, is a new Insidious film mm. called The Red Door, which brings back the principles of the first movie, Patrick Wilson and uh, Rose Byrne. And Patrick Wilson directed the film. Mm. So a, a performer as, as great and sort of uh, pliable as Patrick Wilson, kind of going all in with the genre that made his bones, I, I really like that. Patrick Wilson, of course, in not only Insidious, but in The Conjuring, has become a horror icon. And he's going to be in, he's reprising his role from Aquaman in the, in that sequel oh, okay. later this year. He's a very interesting performer. And I, and the idea of him jumping into directing, I want to see what he does. I saw that uh, Insidious trailer and, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting older. So like I have, I've got tons of stuff in my head. So when the trailer started, I was like, is this a Conjuring sequel? Like I couldn't, <laughs> wait, this is the other horror franchise that he's in. All right. So lots to see this summer. It'll be interesting. Yeah, to see how the numbers shake out. Final prediction, what's the the biggest movie of the summer? I think Little Mermaid is pretty unstoppable. The only thing that gives me pause about it is the running time. The original Little Mermaid is like 89 minutes. This new one is literally 52 minutes longer than the the animated classic, which I'm assuming will mean a lot more Ursula. You know, if you're going to have Melissa McCarthy, she's going to be improvising for your cameras, mm-hmm. probably fleshing out Prince Eric so that the criticism that the romance is empty is is no longer there. Uh, that's a concern. The the weird animals that are not quite anthropomorphized like they had in The Lion King, that's kind of creepy and off-putting too. But I mean, you can't argue with the songs of Little Mermaid. Uh, just to hear new versions of those classic songs in a theater uh, and a movie that will bring together many generations, I think Little Mermaid's a safe bet. I'm going to go with Mission Impossible just because uh, a safe bet in that I think uh, we'll see a lot of movies do well and it might just do better than, you know, the next highest grossing movie. But we'll we'll see. I think Mission Impossible is almost certainly going to be the most entertaining movie possible <laughs> possible <laughs> this this summer. <laughs> that's going to that's going to be a pull quote. They're going to put go. that on the poster. <laughs> Uh, listeners also, Sean uh, wrote about this in the Daily Herald. You can check that out, thedailyherald.com. Sean, it's always a pleasure. Thanks Thank so you, much. Sir. That was Sean Stangland. He's the assistant news editor and widescreen columnist for the Daily Herald. And the sky of green. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want. 
plus pictures and links that go along with all the stories you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Yeah.